Hi guys, welcome to episode 6 of Books with Jen. If you're listening to this on YouTube and you'd prefer to download the episode to take with you while you're out and about on the go, just go to jen-campbell.com forward slash podcast and you can find it there. I am so excited to have Max Porter on this episode of the podcast. I absolutely adored his book, Grief is the Thing with Feathers, which came out last year. It's part essay, part poetry, part novella, amusing on grief. And it is about two sons and their father after their mother slash wife has died. Um, And this creature comes into their home, this huge crow that speaks to them, this embodiment of grief. And he is kind of the crow from Ted Hughes's collection crow but also not but that is where the inspiration comes from if you've read crow um then you know how brilliant it is crow by Ted Hughes is a collection about this monstrous bird called crow he's almost godlike but it's grotesque and it's ugly and it's it's vile really um and Max has taken this idea of this creature who embodies everything that we hate and has put it in this situation with these vulnerable children and a father who doesn't know how to go on. He's a Ted Hughes scholar and it's the most beautiful thing. If you haven't read it already, I really, really recommend you do. You do not have to have read Crow by Ted Hughes to understand this at all. Um, In the interview, Max makes a lovely point as how he thinks of Ted Hughes's Crow and everything in that as sort of the decoration within a cathedral. It's not like if the cathedral was his book, it it's not part of the actual architecture. It's not holding it up, but it is a little thing that if you notice, you admire. So you definitely don't have to have read Crow, but I would recommend that you read it anyway because it's absolutely wonderful. So yeah, I caught up with Max. He was also the senior editor at Granta Books and Portobello Books who published some absolutely fabulous books. So I went down to Granta offices to have a chat with him about Grief is a Thing with Feathers, his experience of writing it and his experience as a publisher as well. Hi guys, I'm here with Max Porter, creator of books, writer of books. He has written Grief is a Thing with Feathers, uh, which is amazing and I have rambled on about it quite a lot. Well done, you wrote a good book, excellent. Congratulations. Thanks, thanks for your You've kind won words. Like, lots of awards now. I haven't actually, I've just won one. Well, it feels like lots. Have you been shortlisted for lots of them? Yeah, I was so sick of seeing your face everywhere. Thanks very much. There was a week <laughs> when it was too much Max Porter. Yeah. <laughs> Even uh, for you. Well, You're like, oh God, I'm so sick of myself. I won the Dylan Thomas Prize and then my author won the Booker Prize, the International Booker Prize. Yeah. And then I got a promotion at work and, and my boss wanted us to do a story about it. So we told the bookseller and there was a story about it. And he, yeah, it was like. Do you feel like you were Max talking about yourself in the third person too much? Like? Yeah, he's overexposed. <laughs> <laughs> so let's talk about grief. When did you start writing that? Uh, about two and a half years ago. Mm. But I, you know, I had been thinking about it for a long time. I didn't want to write a book. I didn't mean to write a book, but I did. Ha- I have had scraps of things collected for years. And little bits of half poetry and drawings, and I'm quite a. I'm quite a notebook keeper, so I had these, as you, you know, like that really, a mix of, of writing and drawing. And then I wanted for a long time to write the story about these two brothers, and about ten years ago I'd written a few little sort of mini short stories about two brothers where, the, where, the, where they changed, where there was mm. no fixed relationship, and I was, I was into that. That was, a, that was something I felt was interesting, and, and, and I wondered actually whether it was possible to recreate uh, the sibling relationship as a character. Okay. So that was my primary 
thing and that had been bubbling along. Mm. And then I got very obsessed with Crows. And then I got, and I have been very obsessed with Ted Hughes, but they were separate projects in my head. And then I met a friend of my dad's who, who told me a bit more about the circumstances of my dad dying. Mm. Sad stuff. And so then I came out of the pub after having seen him and, I, and, I, and, I, and the whole thing just made perfect sense to me that I would do it as a triptych. And, and I thought of it as wooden bowls because I'm very into wood. And the number three. And, uh, and I thought if I put my brother's thing in one bowl and I put the story of this man that's lost his wife in another bowl, I could put all my feelings about my dad and my children and the, the things I'm interested in writing about in mm. that bowl. And then I realised that, of course, it would be Crow. Of course. It had to be Crow. And I recognised then the risk of taking on something with so much baggage. Well, really, like, you don't have to read Crow first by Ted Hughes. You don't have to know about Ted Hughes. Um, but trust that it's in there. And what, are you worried that people feel like they have to read the other book first? No. I'm not worried about it. I can't be worried about it. I mean, you were one of the people who said early on you really don't need to. You don't. But perhaps if you have, you get a different level of understanding. Yeah, or even if you just read Crow afterwards. I think it's nice to read both, but it's not necessary. I hope people will read Crow. It's such a shocking and ugly and brilliant book. My hope is that it's patterning, that that it's a bit like like when you're in a church and you see carvings right up top that Mm. you would miss. They aren't part of the architecture, they're part of the detail. and, And... and it shouldn't affect your experience of being in the building. And that's my... I hope that nothing I did with Ted Hughes... Because there's stuff in there that only real Ted Hughes nerds have found, like professors of Ted Hughes studies have emailed me going, how did you know that? <laughs> um, and they get it and they like it, but that I hope that the simple story of a man and his two sons dealing with this violation of their... You know, this sudden atrocious change in the shape of their family is the story. Mm. I'd hate for anything to get in the way of that. And some of the review, I felt that some of the, you know, that was the risk choosing Ted Hughes because there's so much baggage and it's so famous. But and then he again, is that's, so famous. And he is, it yeah. is so famous. Yeah. And Crow's relationship to the death of Path is so famous. But in a way, that risk is also the possibility because what I want to say about poetry in life is that these things are all collapsed together. You can't separate the person from the poems. You, you can make a plea for poetry to be read separate from a poet's biography, but ultimately it's not possible because no. we are all voyeuristic and we do all need to pin words to objects and lives to, to literature and stuff so it was a, it was a, it's funny the reviews coming out in America they handle it much better they get it much more easily that it's a, it's an homage it's, a, it's an investigation of the impact of poetry on a life and it's like the human brain or anything there's, there's mu- they're much less hung up over Hughes mm. um, it's weird actually because I didn't realise how much I mean I, obviously I love poetry and I've read both and Hughes but I didn't realise how much of a feeling I had for them as people until um, my uh, the person who runs Ripping Yarn Celia Mitchell her husband was Adrian Mitchell and Mm. they were good Mm. friends with Mm. Ted Hughes Mm. she hates Sylvia Platt she's like oh that woman and and the reaction in me was like oh no I don't approve of this I'm like this is weird but she was just casually saying you know when I would drive Ted to his readings and I'm like sorry can we just it's so weird, like Ted Hughes yeah. is in your car, yeah. um, and it is, um, and what, what is quite funny is that when she talks about Ted, it's obviously how towering he was, and mm-hmm, he was always mm-hmm. like crouching over people, and when you walked in here, you're so tall, and I was like, oh. I don't, I don't have the, the... You need the Yorkshire accent, don't you? Well, I don't have the kind of megalith, you know, Ted was obviously someone of incredible, imposing physical presence. Yeah. I don't have that. I wouldn't perhaps want that. He was a man of 
some power, yeah. I think. But the weird thing is the way people fixate on that. I mean, I, I found, because I'm quite pro Ted, because mm. he's an astonishing writer, particularly his prose and his letters and stuff. I find him a remarkable figure, mm. important person, troublesome man, a shit. Yeah. You know, I don't approve <laughs> of the word. I don't yeah. approve, I'm not that type of man. I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't know how you live that kind of life. I don't, I wouldn't want to live that kind of life. I don't want to hurt the people I love, etc., etc. Mm. And yet I admire so totally the way he carried that burden and did it with such grace and then wrote birthday letters and all sorts of things. But I'm not, it's not that interesting because it's been hashed out so many times. So the idea that you take sides, one of the nicest things someone wrote about that was that it genuinely contributes to Ted Hughes' scholarship in as much as it suggests a moving on from all that. Yeah. Like, let that be a thing, a knotty tragic interesting thing and now I'll read the poems again yeah like read what this person's work was about same with, ne- same with Plath I yeah mean, yeah and he never ever talked about it did he like he would never refuse to be involved no. in any kind of project but he protected her work he was just like yeah. I'm not going to talk about it and they were very very that, and that, that's the greatest thing because they were very very serious about each other's work the one thing they always were was incredibly serious about the poetry they were writing. And she helped him a lot, and he helped her a lot. She got him published in the first place, right? Yeah. I mean, he hadn't... Yeah. yeah, yeah. And I also think, at a certain point, what is it we want... What is it as kind of gossipy voyeurs of the world? I mean, I read the Jonathan Bate biography and took issue with a lot of it, while I agreed with some of the things he thinks about the poems. But what is it we're, we're after? Some kind of titillation? Some kind of confirmation of our own bias? Some kind of, like, sexual... We, we, some kind of weird mirroring thing going on where we, we, we want to know who Ted was shagging and we want to know who, we want to know how unbelievably orgasmic it made people feel to be in the presence of Ted Hughes and I can't quite see why no. but I guess that's just you can see that across the culture it's weird it's human need for stories isn't it it's like we want to know why like Ted Hughes' wives both killed themselves we want to like give him some we want to find out these stories that people well have talked about over and over again as if we're going to find something new that has never been talked yeah. about before even though neither of them are here anymore yeah. I think probably they're not even like any form of celebrity they're not even actual people anymore people don't care who they actually were they're these they're ideas ciphers, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah anyway like symbols we're talking about him I a lot to Ted, <laughs> I, I talk to friends of Ted lots of friends of Ted I know people, yeah. poets and people and writers and publishers I've spoken to and generally it's quite interesting how we are now talking about Ted as a poet yeah. more uh, you know he has been rescued from that that tragic set of circumstances in a way, perhaps by the collective poems, perhaps by the general sense that as the dust settles on a certain generation of British mm. poetry, it's unarguable that he's a titan. Yeah. He's a massively good English poet. Absolutely. You know? Yeah. And also I wanted to write a bit, you know the scene in my book where he goes to Oxford and meets Ted Hughes? I wanted to write a bit about being a fan. Yeah. Because it's a slight, it's a wonderful thing being a real fan of someone. Like, I mean, a bit, I'm, like, I'm like this with a couple of other writers. But it's also slightly humiliating, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like it's a bit like, um, like you're, you're sort of, you're sort of accepting that you, yeah. I mean, I, I never have posters of pop stars on my wall, so I guess I'm yeah. experiencing quite late in life what it means to just adore someone. And it's all well. I met Philip Pullman a few months ago and had one of those moments where I was just like word vomiting everywhere and just watching myself going, "Oh, God's sake, just shut yeah, up!" Yeah, yeah. And I was like, "Just, uh, just, it's amazing." His dark materials, wrote my dissertation on it, thank you very much. And he was like, oh, cool, what do, what do you do? And then I was like, I'm an author, but 
not not like you. We're like, we're like, <laughs> very you, different. Sir oh my god, are you not a sir? Sorry, I didn't give you as a sir. I can't can't say that to him. I can't yeah. say that I write books because it's not this. Oh god, it's just immense. Yeah. It's embarrassing. Well, I got myself in a right pickle this year with, with with saying I'm a writer and just refusing to do it. So I go. I that makes you of, a writer, though. That it's does make you a writer. Tragic, and it's like I I, I say, oh, I'm, I'm an editor. Uh, uh, I'll and they go, oh right, you, that's you. You wrote that book. Oh, that's, that's done. Me? Yeah, that's done well. And I, and I, and I oh well, yeah, it's just so. Uh, and then, so I've got to this point now where I think it's the Dylan Thomas Prize has made me think I can now say. Writer. You're a writer. You're a and writer. also because I've bought a computer and I intend to write a book on it, I think that's quite a game-changing moment. Because mm. this one kind of bubbled out in accident and I didn't have a computer, so I was emailing it to myself back and forth and stuff. So I couldn't actually say I was a writer. Now. When I start on page one of the new You're thing. going to listen to yourself back thinking, oh my God, what am I even... What, like, what? Come on, the rules you have for yourself. You're a writer. You've written a damn good book. You publish all of the books. But that's the thing. It's like, to begin with, I thought it would be two hats. Yeah. That I'd go from, you know... So even someone saying, would I do an event or would I do a podcast? Which me do you want? Yeah. And that's just ludicrous. It's everything the same feeds me. into everything. It's the same me. And also my day job is, is spent thinking how best to package these things, how best to get them into the world, mm. spent in someone's manuscript with a pencil, trying to make it the most it can be, yeah. having really interesting discussions about language all day and every day, and, and whether we can get literature to work or not, what are the challenges are, and it's basically being a part of that from the other side and being grateful for efforts that are being made on the book's behalf. It's the same thing. It's the same thing. But I could... Um, start something completely unconnected. Uh-huh. So I go, oh, I'm a, I'm, I work in publishing and, I, and I'm a writer and I make quilts. Something <laughs> totally, you know what I mean? So yeah. people go, oh. It's like when yeah. people have those quirky uh, Twitter small biographies, it's like, I write books and I like cheese. Yeah. You could be that person. Yeah, but it, I think maybe it would be quilts is too easy because it's so similar to this. This is kind of quilt making. You can have an aimery. What an aviary? Yeah, oh, that's quite. That's too similar. I want something that the people go really. I think something like uh, something to do with motors. Okay. Do you mind reading a little bit from yeah. me? Oh, he just smiles. So much, what bit should I read? I don't know. Whatever you want to read. All right, I'll read this bit towards the end of the book. Okay. Someone's using some sellotape out there. <laughs> Dad, moving on as a concept was mooted a year or two after by friendly men on behalf of their well-intentioned wives. Women who loved us. Women who knew me as a child. Oh, I said, we move. We fucking hurtle through space like three magnificent break-fail bangers, thank you, Geoffrey, and send my love to Jean. Moving on as a concept is for stupid people, because any sensible person knows grief is a long-term project. I refuse to rush. The pain that is thrust upon us let no man slow or speed or fix. So I walked into their room in the navy blue middle of the night in summertime and I listened to them breathing. Duvets smashed and tangled, little soft limbs emerging from robot and pirate print cotton and assorted soft toys. My wife and I used to come and tuck them in and marvel at how perfect they were asleep. We laughed at how beautiful they were. It's insane, we said. It was insane. And I stood and breathed their air and considered, as always, things like fragility, danger, luck, imperfection, chance, 
being kind, being funny, being honest, eyes, hair, bones, the impossible hectic silent epidermis rejuvenating itself, never nervous, always kissable, even when scabbed, even so salty I made it and I felt so many nights utterly, totally yanked apart by how much I loved these children. And I asked them loudly, do you want to move on? No reply. Should we think about moving on? The swish and ruffle of air in nostrils. Clacking tongues, sighs, the gentle, invisible, concentrated upper air of a room in the top of a flat where young people are dreaming. No, I said. I agree. We are doing just fine. Crow joined me as I left, shutting the door, and got me in a cosy headlock. You're not alone, kid. Brilliant. Thanks. Oh, thanks. You want to? <laughs> I'm reading it. Good. I've had many crises of faith and I've, and I've felt nervous and I've felt overexposed and I've felt many things yeah. this year, many, many emotions and so many that I can't quite process them. But one thing I've never felt is a stranger to the book itself. Good. When I'm reading it, I think, oh, yeah. I wrote that. That's my, and actually, I'm having this conversation with an author at the moment who's writing a book that is a big deal because it, it, it was a difficult book for her to write and it's, it's profoundly brilliant but involved putting a lot of her herself into it mm. and, uh, and it was a long and fascinating editorial journey and, I, and I'm incredibly proud of her and it is remarkable but she said to me that one of the things she usually does is look at the book at this stage it's been printed and say oh my god why did I put that semicolon there she's a, yeah. she's a um, punctuation nut and she said that's not happening this time I'm opening it I'm looking at it and I'm going yeah that's what I want to say good and that's how I feel about this that is, this is still what I want to say and I'm keen to move on, I'm keen to do something different, but I, I'm really happy that I haven't sort of... It hasn't turned poisonous for me. And I know that happens to writers. You, you get yeah. a sense of sort of shame or regret or dissatisfaction with what you've done. And I still think it's short and weird and can't believe it's been published. Well, can we talk about how you got it published as well? Because obviously, and we're going to talk about this more, but Max works, Granta and Portobello works. Um, so you must have decided, I'm not going to give it to my own people. Did you decide that? That was never an option. No? You're no. not allowed? Is that some kind of in I don't policy? know whether I would have been allowed. I don't think I would have wanted to. A bit too close? A bit too close. I, people are published by the houses they work for, but it's unusual. Yeah. It wouldn't have been right. And I think it would have been very complex to have to sit in meetings here and discuss <laughs> Your own book. Yeah, it wouldn't have worked. No. So it's published by Faber here? Yeah. And how has it been from the other side? Uh, good. Well, should I tell you what happened? Yeah, yeah. Because it's a good story. Because I think you, I believe in that you've got to kind of play it as it lays. Mm. You've got to do what you know. Cause in some respects, I'm immensely jammy. In other respects, I just you do you do what you do. And if the book had been crap or the book had not been, then it wouldn't have happened. The yeah. truth is, you just let things go. And and I believe this now with people in different languages doing it, and someone making a film and a play and all those sorts of things. I don't like meeting resistance. Mm. Something feels dodgy. Don't push it. Yeah. What's been nice about this is it's flown off. And people have embraced it and carried it off with their own different and varied kind of sense of sense of it. And it's mm. blank space. People people can live in this book in ways that I can't control, and I love that. So I gave it to my wife, who said, "Don't know." Oh, nice, encouraging. <laughs> like it, 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 it's it's good, but what I don't know what on earth you're going to do with it. Um, and I, weirdly, I said to her, is it weird that I've kind of imagined you dying? And she's like, oh, I didn't, didn't think of that. <laughs> um, which is good. 
so then I gave it to my friend Hannah Westland, who is a publisher, but I didn't give it to her for that reason. I gave it to her because I trust her. Do you know mm. Hannah? No, I don't know Hannah. She's the publisher at Serpent's Tale. And oh, my yes. favourite person in British publishing. Mm. She's exceptional human being. And so she read it and she thought it was very beautiful and very weird and didn't know what I could do with it. And she said, you know, maybe it's the first part of something bigger. Maybe it needs pictures. Maybe you want to think about making it just that bit longer so it becomes more of a kind of an, an obvious sell. Was it different when you showed it to her? No, it was more or less as it was now. Okay. Uh, and I thought, no, it was interesting to be asked whether I want it illustrated. I really didn't. It's easy to know what you don't want, isn't it? Yeah. 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 So, and it's also, I thought, if you, if you will, it's a bit like whether I feel the mother character out. You rob, you, rob, you rob the book of its other, you know, so if I'd made the mother more of a character, I would have been stealing from the boys the opportunity to describe their dad. Mm. And if I put pictures in here, I rob the reader of the opportunity to think their own flat, their own sibling relationships and yeah. stuff. So, uh, so then I thought, well, Faber will, will either sue me or do it. Mm. And I'd had this lunch with Hannah Griffiths at Faber, and we talked about which Ted Hughes book she was going to put in the modern classics. And she said, Hawk in the Rain. And I said, not Crow. And she said, I, I'm not a fan of Crow. Oh, dear. <laughs> and I went home, and you know this list in the book where he says what Crow is scared of? Yeah. I put her name <laughs> in my little notebook. Uh, so then when it was done a few months later, I, I sent it to her. Cause also she's Did she know you were working on it at that point? No. No. No, no one, no one knew. I didn't even tell my brother. I just, I just sat and did it. But I think um, you, you, it was important for me not to think about those things. And, mm. I, and, I, and I'm nostalgic now about that time. No, no readership in mind. I didn't think about publishing. I didn't mm. think about who. I didn't think about the. I just was doing it. I just was doing it because I wanted to get it right for the children in it. You know, I wanted them to have this book that sounded like their experience. And, and that was by, you know, necessarily a private thing. And children don't think about things like publishing and where things are going and audience. No, and, I and also, I, if I'd started to think, oh, you know, basically it's a bit like making, making yourself a meal. Mm -hmm. like, if you're cooking for someone else and you know that other people are going to be eating that meal, you can't, you can't take as many liberties with, you know, I don't know, salt. <laughs> but yeah. Um, yeah, so but now now I'll never have that again. And all writers say this that the, the luxury of the debut is that it's a, you're alone and you'll never be alone again because you've got readers or critics or fans or. Um, so yeah, then Faber took it on, Hannah took it on, and she'd been a good person to send it to, I think, because she had said this thing to me about how she reads. We all read a lot of submissions. She's reading hundreds of books, and she said, and I, I funnily enough, what I want now more than anything else is truth. You know, and, and I don't, it doesn't, that could be realist fiction, non-realist fiction, it could be any type, it doesn't, it's, it's completely beyond genre or length or style. Mm. And she published Emma McBride, which was a relatively good indication, I think, of, of, of her open-mindedness about yeah. form. Um, and I thought, that if there's one thing that I would hope this is, it's true. Yeah. I mean, none of it's true. A couple of bits are true, but it's about telling the truth as best I can. It's the actual cry that's true, isn't it? That's the bit that's true. Yeah, it's the only bit that's <laughs> the true. Only yeah, bit. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, when he has a head the size of a giant testicle or something. <laughs> <laughs> I think the bit that obviously everyone's going to connect with different bits and remember different parts of it. The one that really stuck with me was when Crow said to the boys, You can draw your mother, and whoever makes her the most realistic gets her back. So they make her out of. What is it? One, one draws one and one, one makes her out of pasta. Yeah. And then he says, no, 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 joking. None of you get him back. And that is so 
horrible. Yeah, I felt very sad about that. I made myself sad. That was even worse originally, actually. And I I realised, it's interesting as a writer, because as an editor, I'm really used to saying to people, I think that's actually too Too much much or not enough. Mm. Or I see the emotional or stylistic effect you're trying to get there and I think you need to go further or whatever. Or it would work better not juxtaposed with what's come before. All those sorts of things you're thinking about, the the building of the text. And and I wrote this thing where they did a fancy dress parade, Mm. where the dad sat in a chair and they came through one by one and first the brothers were each other and then they were crow and then there's a sort of awful silence and he thought the game was over and then his wife walked in and I felt really sick about that and sad and I knew that the boys would feel that they'd gone too far and I knew crow would feel that he'd he'd actually done too Mm -hmm. much too soon and so I repurposed that into the drawing scene but also I have her coming back as a ghost at a certain point much later so when the initial trauma has sort of settled into something more like, more like sad, sadness, like being gutted on a daily basis that you're still missing this person, that's an okay time to be haunted, if you see what I mean? Like yeah. the, the haunting has, has different capacities at different times, and I, so I just moved it. Mm-hmm. And that's how it was for me with this. I was just turning up the volume and, at, at different points and, and think. Because also, I think if you're going to put fables right up next to like little mini essays right up next to a play or something, firstly they they can't be too long because then you're over-egging it, and the reading you kind of violate the reader's patience with it. But also, it, the movement between them is the important thing. So it's all very well to have a little fable, but you have to figure out what comes before the fable and after the fable to give the fable its meaning. Yeah. And that's a, that's a, that's an audible that's a sound thing as well as a as well as a content thing, I think. Yeah, absolutely. It's a bit like making a mixtape. Yeah. And that, I feel like, is like the volume as well. You said Mm. very sad. It's like making a mixtape. You're doing it in in talking about things as well. I think it's great. Mm. But that, the fancy dress party, is that is desperately sad and makes me think of, like, J.M. Barry when he used to dress up as Mm. his dead brother for his Mm. mother because she wouldn't talk to him unless he was dressed up as his brother. That's incredibly sad. And it's just... Everything to do with Peter Pan is desperately sad. Um, So, have I asked you this on the podcast? I am distantly related to the Lost Boys. You are? I I couldn't tell you. What, the Llewellyn Davies? Yeah. And also, my family tree on that side is really complex and weird, and we've got weird, eccentric English people. Yeah. And on the other side, it's just deep Welsh. (laughs) It's far back. I said to my cousin once about family tree, and he went, all the way back to Roderick the Great. (laughs) 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 I'd like to see that one. Maybe there were some warriors in our family. Nice. Warriors. As well as lost boys. And and boy pirates, like Neverland. Nice. So (laughs) what do you want to write next? Uh, I want to write uh, a story. I I wrote a poem about ten years ago. uh, And I want to turn it into a novel. And it's broadly speaking going to be about um, eccentricity and loneliness and artistic people and friendship and to some extent Englishness Mm. and if you're not someone that's nationalistic or if you're someone that's even slightly ashamed of the English character as on the cusp of (laughs) Brexit we're all a bit bloody terrified and ashamed of this English character that thinks that we are some I mean I'll say this now because this is how I'm feeling you know this moment in history now Mm. where I mean, the greatest humanitarian crisis in the century is occurring in, in 
the Middle East, the world is in terrible state. There are all sorts of things that need urgently addressing about the way we're treating our fellow human beings. And we've picked this moment to say, what about us? What does the world owe us? And we're so special. And I think it's grotesque. It is. And, um, and I, so I want to try and write a, a book about someone who has this yearning for a kind of green English romanticism, for something to do with myth and the land, but is also frightened and damaged by the world and doesn't like the modern world and doesn't feel equipped to be in it and feels that it's... that, ev- that even the very existing in the world, the having of the credit card, the signing of the form, the, is, is a kind of betrayal of something. So those are the sorts of things I'm thinking about, cheerful stuff. That sounds pretty awesome, I think. Well, for me, the main thing is, what will it be like to write prose? Because I But never will you, though? Know. Will you actually write No, it won't. Well, no, no I, I think I'll write, I'll write it however it needs to be, and certainly one of the characters is going to be a, book in, a character in the book that, that, that is going to have a very unusual, lang- very unusual use of language. Mm. Um, but that's because he's going to be an un- unusual character. I don't want to do it for the sake of it. I think that we have to happens. feel, we have to feel it out. I mean, um, God, we're such pretentious shit. Well, you really, you've got it, you, you're allowed to be while you're thinking about this sort of thing because then yeah. that's how interesting things get made. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, you, you could be one of those people, you know, like, you know, which do you prefer? Like an artist that can sit there and say, oh, I made this huge representation of the female vagina. And I just wanted, or do you prefer the guy that's like, I made a massive fanny and put it in the middle of a square in Miami? Like, which do you prefer, the straight talker or the, the person that theorises about their work? In a way, I find them both attractive models, yeah. but inevitably, because it's literature and it's my job, I, there's no point denying, you know, because that whole thing of, especially the male writers at a certain stage, like, they need silence and they need their muse to speak to them and they can't be distracted because they're going to write their next thing. I think that's bollocks. You know, like, I change nappies, I have arguments with sales directors, I get on a sweaty train every morning. This is good. I yeah. hope good work can come from it. I don't, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm panicking about lots of things at the moment. Can I find the space, the privacy? Can I get back into the zone? But I'm not, I'm not going to go and sit in a writer's shed in some... No. You know. And I think people who ask those questions, because I get asked that a lot, like, what are the environments that you write in? What are your writing rules? Where do you write? How do you, how do you write? It's like, you just do it. Like, if yeah. you are thinking all the time, how do I do this, yeah. instead of just doing it, you're never going to do it. Yeah. Also, you, you allow, the luxuries you allow yourself continue to be the excuses that prop up the way you're living anyway. So if yeah. you're like, I, I, I manage 500 words before lunchtime you think well manage a bit more you lazy git or something I don't know each to their own I'm, I'm quite tolerant of people's eccentricities because the fundamental thing is that books are quite a weird thing to a relatively small number of people in the world that sit alone in rooms reading books mm-hmm. so we're allowed to be a bit weird about it I think as well and it is a weird thing that it's such a lonely process and then you have to be able to share it with the world and yeah. then talk about it yeah. and I think it's very difficult for a lot of people to be able to do all of those things well, also, it's brutal, isn't it, that we now expect writers to be able to be public performers of their work. Yeah. Like, by net definition, these are, these are weird and private people. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I quite like it when you go and see a writer and they're hopeless, <laughs> reading their own work, and they're all shy and embarrassed. I, I think it's charming. Do you ever get a little bit destroyed when you've read something brilliant and then you meet the person who's written it and they're an asshole? Have you had that? Have I had that? No, not really. I've had difficult people who I've really admired. Um, I, I tend to get disappointed in people anyway. Like, I want my gravestone to say, why are you all so weird? <laughs> like, people that you 
No, who then go all weird on you. I find it disappointing and interesting. I'd like my gravestone to say I'm behind you. <laughs> I think that would be quite funny. <laughs> anyway, yeah, we Get off writers. my grave. <laughs> Get off. Yeah. I, um, I, I mean, so for example, I... But and yet, I, I'm so attracted to, to, to odd people that are, even if they're ghastly, I find it appealing. I've had great, like, I mean, I can say this now, rest in peace, Harold Pinter. Mm. One of the most joyful encounters of my life was Harold Pinter losing his shit with me in the bookshop because we <laughs> didn't stop his play. And it was such fun. He hit the till with his stick and Lady Antonia went, I'm so sorry. <laughs> and I was like, it's fine. Yeah, he did this big thing about why we weren't stopping his plays. And I was just, I don't know. I just felt that's not cool and I don't see why I should just... So I said, this is slightly at odds with... Because he just won the Nobel Prize and done that speech about tyranny nice. and the behaviour of superpowers. And I said, this is slightly at odds with your politics, I think, isn't it? But, and, and Antonio was like, good point. And then, um, and then anyway, the next day a box of his plays arrived. Um, and I wrote a letter saying, with the greatest of respect, plays by any measure, do not sell as well as children's books. And I would rather have a busy children's book section Who full of... Who did he send children. you the plays? He just asked someone a favour to send me the plays. Oh, nice. So I wrote this thing about, you know, what, which is the better use of bookshop space, children's books or Pinter plays. Mm. Um, I'm a huge Pinter fan, so it was, you know... It came from a place of love. Yeah, and so I sent them back. Yeah. Did I mean, difficult reply? things... No, never. <laughs> uh, I mean, he was old and dying. Mm. Um, and, and able, I love people getting cross. My grandmother was a ferociously cross person who offended everybody. I love that. But I'm assuming that you publish lots of lovely people as well. So Because the thing is, actually, if we're talking about Harold Pinter coming in and losing his shit, at Granta, you don't... I mean, you publish great things, and you hmm. publish some things that, that obviously sell a lot, but you publish beautiful, interesting, unusual things that probably aren't going to make you a millionaire. No. Which is fantastic. What are your favourite things that you're publishing right now? You handed me things as I came in. One of them is not yours, but I noticed it's Grey Wolf Press, and I'm very excited about it. Well, this is, uh, I'll tell you what, this yeah, is yeah. So Much for That Winter by Daughter Norse, who, this is published by Grey Wolf, but she's in print in this country with uh, Pushkin Press. Mm. She wrote a book called Karate Chop, which is stories which mm. has the first half of this book, Mina Needs a Rehearsal Space, uh, in it as well. She's fabulous. This book is written as a list and it's about frustration and loneliness and being dumped and um, women's bodies. It's just absolutely brilliant. I have a deep crush on this book. Uh, this book I'm holding now is the very beautiful Adlands, which is a book by Tom Buller. And you published this one. This is one of ours. And uh, he, it's very intricate. It's like John McGarn or Alan Garner or Halvor Laxness. It's a proper big, intricate literary novel. Mm. It's full of Radnorshire dialect, so it takes a little while to get into, and it's also one of those books that doesn't tell you things, because it's a bit like life itself. You, you, things are alluded to, and you think, oh, what, what, no wait, is that the church or the chapel? I don't understand. Or where's the young, where's the, where's the grandpa? I thought the grandpa, and, and, and you figure it out, mm. as the characters figure it out, and as life moves on. It's so carefully put together. It moves with the seasons, and each chapter is a tree. It's got these gorgeous integrated... Wait, did you say each chapter is a tree? Yeah, it moves through the seasons with the trees and it tells the story of 70 years and, and one year. And I've never read, I don't think, such good writing about the landscape. It's exquisite. So that's Adlands. Mm -hmm. And then we have the tidal zone. And we have the new Sarah Moss, which is a 
brilliant, brilliant book, her best book. We've wanted Sarah Moss to come back to kind of contemporary life because her brilliant revisionist sort of feminist novels about the 19th century, the Moberly family, were amazing, but I think possibly didn't reach the audience they should have done because they were 19th century books. Uh, and because Sarah has this really brittle and fiery intelligence, mm. and um, I think there wasn't enough about ordinary people's lives perhaps to put readers in. But she's world class, I think. I love Sarah Moss's books. This is about a guy called Adam who's a stay-at-home dad and has these teenage, one teenage daughter and one slightly younger daughter, and Miriam, the teenage daughter, just falls down one day at school. Her heart has stopped beating. So it's about the, that cataclysmic moment and how they recover from it. And she's Miriam, who we've put a painting of on the cover, is just such a cool dude. She's like a member of the Green Party and Amnesty, and she's a total radical feminist. And every time Adam opens his mouth, she's like, oh God, shut up, patriarchy. <laughs> like, it's so good. She's always on his back. And so while he's, te he's getting a load of grief from this girl, just at the precise moment, he's trying to figure out what would happen if she wasn't there and to love her. And I wept heavily working on this book because there are these moments where, I mean, the beginning of the book, it talks about, you know, a man meets a woman and the man puts his seed inside the woman and nine months later the woman feels the pulse inside, you know. And it, it's incredibly moving incredibly moving and woven through it is the story of Coventry Cathedral so if there are any Midlands readers there we are that's the, oh, nice. that's the angels and so it talks about how Basil Spence designed, won the competition to design the new Coventry Cathedral and how you rebuild after so how you rebuild a city after it's been bombed how you rebuild a life after it's been shocked how you rebuild a marriage when you stop dragging and all you do is worry about your kids it's really really good Does Stefan hate you? What, because he turned the vegetarian down? He did. Stefan Tover, who runs that and other stories, said no to the vegetarian when Deborah first translated it, when she pretended that she could uh, speak and write Korean, but actually yeah. couldn't. So he did a very bad translation, and yeah. he said no. I think everybody in the UK turned the vegetarian down. It's like the JK Rowling. I think probably there? someone here turned it down. Yeah? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I, 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 it's impossible for me to separate what I know of it I mean, I, I just read the first page and was like, sold. What yeah. an extraordinary premise for a book. How horrifying this voice is, this husband's voice that just in the first line says, my wife was a perfectly ordinary woman until she stopped eating meat. What? Like, I said to Deborah, if the rest of the book is this good, then let's do this. Yeah. But you can't, I mean, I've turned down things that have been successful. It's really hard. You've got to, you read so much and... And even, actually, I, I spoke to a writer the other day who I turned down, and I was like, I, I, I loved it to begin with, and then it just didn't do anything for me. And then it got a bit shit. Yeah, and they said, uh, yeah, lots of people tell me that. Was, Fine, good. I mean, I've, you know, I got a really sweet DM from a writer I admire about this, saying, uh, the crow is a right pain in the arse. That's the fucking point. He's so yappy. And I was like, that's a perfectly good reason for not liking the book. Is it? Yeah. No, I disagree. <laughs> it's like, I feel like that person missed the point. <laughs> Chris, 
Crow is not supposed to be like a lovable thing you want to hug and like cuddle no. at night. But, but I think my, this person wanted Crow to be Hughes's Crow, to be severe and um, mythologically significant and phallus wielding and all that sort of thing. This crow is just like morphing all the time, isn't he? He's yeah. all these things. And so he's, and he's got thirty years hindsight on Ted Hughes and he's taking the piss a bit and yeah. he's and he takes himself a whole lot less seriously than Ted Hughes's crow and that must bother some people. But that's what makes it interesting because that's what grief is like. It doesn't stay in the same form every day. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Tell that to your Well I said it before, you? you're you're the perfect reader. No, look thanks. I wrote I signed this for you. Oh look. Nice. Oh, thanks. <laughs> You're so nice. We're going to end this interview here. And also, speaking of Han Kang, you can come back next month and listen to Deborah Smith talking about how she pretended to speak Korean when she didn't. <laughs> I will say that Han Kang is, 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 and my relationship with her is so special, and I feel honoured to work with her. She's such a, a remarkable person. Mm. She's so. She is the she's writer, so, isn't it? That's the impression yeah. I get. She is the embodiment of calm yeah. and... But she's so phenomenally ambitious in terms of the emotional terrain that she wants to explore, but she's also so gentle and self-deprecating. Mm-hmm. Uh, and she th- she is an artist. She's, she's making things, and she's yeah. con- constantly thinking about how to make things in the world. And she also said the most brilliant thing, which I've just stolen from her and used at every event I've done in the last two months. She said that all the work she's doing is an attempt to mourn better. Yeah. That we are, we are refining our relationship to what has gone before in order to think more carefully about how are we living now. And I think as a kind of manifesto of art making, but also of pacifism and of gentleness, is extraordinary. Yeah. I love it. And I, it's what makes me so despise the, the, the political classes and the warmongering classes and the, and, you know, and the sort of get-rich-at-all-costs mentality behind this kind of rotten late-stage capitalism is that no one is, being, no one is thinking how to mourn better. If anything, they're thinking how to, how to marketise mm-hmm. mourning, you know, how to turn it into an industry that might get people to behave in the way you want them to behave. Yeah, I agree. And I thought it was very sweet, the, um, an embodiment of that, at the Mambaka International Prize, where she stood up and was very calm, mm-hmm. and Deborah was just in floods ah, of tears. And Kang said, don't cry. Don't cry. <laughs> <laughs> She's yeah. like, the mother of books. I love yeah. it. I had a little cry then. I was Aww. so happy for her. I realised while I was editing this that we didn't actually end this podcast. After this point, Max and I just start talking about ridiculous things and we completely forgot that we were recording the podcast. That's how I know that podcasts go well if you forget that you're actually recording one. So apologies if it feels like this podcast has ended quite suddenly, but we had such a laugh recording it. It was really, really great. And if you haven't read Max's book yet, please go and check it out. If you're listening to this on YouTube, then I'll link all of the books that Max mentioned in the description box down below. Otherwise, please go ahead and Google them, check them out. I hope you guys enjoyed this episode. If you would like to suggest people or themes for future episodes of the podcast you can reach me at genvcampbell at gmail.com or find me on twitter over at aeroplane girl as always in the meantime before the next podcast which i upload once a month you can find me over at youtube.com forward slash genvcampbell where i'll be uploading bookish videos in the meantime i hope you guys are having a great week i'll speak to you very soon lots of bookish love